Well, part of the reason that I um, did this meditation tonight also is that it connects with what I wanted to talk about. Um, and before I went down to Joshua Tree four weeks ago or so, um, for the those of you who were here on that Monday night, um, I did a talk about identity and taking different aspects of ourself, our feelings, our thoughts, our opinions, our family heritage, our religion, our whatever it happens to be, our race, our, our, our orientation, and so forth, as an identity, and how identity is actually quite fluid, and that we can identify with all kinds of things, and that it becomes helpful to not have a rigid identity, but rather to see that we're connected with all things. So this is kind of a way of following that theme. Um, and I'm also, well, I'll start with this. There's a, a poet who used to come on Monday night some years ago named Lynn Park, who just died. And she, uh, this is the poem that she gave me on Monday night, um, which is, she said, in some way she wrote it in the spirit of Rumi. Um, Take the time to pray or meditate. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swim, swing open easily. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. The stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. She uh, was a child with brittle bone disease, which meant that she broke her bones probably 15 times before she was 12 years old, just running or jumping or something like that. The stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road. They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. Oh, this sweet poem. Take the time to pray, to meditate. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden. So, I thank you, Lynn. Um, and when somebody we know dies, which happens regularly, and more as, as you get older, you start to know more and more people who die. Um, you're faced with what in Zen is called the great matter, which is your own mortality and the mystery of birth and death. Um, and it's, as I think Don Juan said to Carlos Castaneda all those many long years ago, only because death is stalking you that life is an unfathomable mystery. Um, and it is. And he says, if you, if you have any difficulty in sorting out what you should do or making decisions, turn to your left and look for death who's waiting there over your left shoulder as your advisor. And it will help clarify what you might want to do. So here we are, and we come together to meditate. And one of the great texts or teachings, the Buddha said, suppose there were a carpenter who were going into the forest looking for building wood to make something precious, the heartwood of a fine tree. And he came back carrying the leaves or the small branches or the bark of the tree. Would you say that was of any value to him? And of course the monk said, no, sir. You know, that's how those dialogues went, no. Um, and the Buddha said, then what would, what would be of value? And he said that he would have to go and find um, those trees that had that heartwood that um, could be then used for making a beautiful piece of furniture or constructing something of value. And he said, similarly, in these teachings, um, people will hear the teachings of the Buddha um, and get caught up in the externals, in the forms, in the words, or even in some of the understandings or insights or, or gifts that come um, as if 
somehow uh, that was the heart of the matter. But in fact, he said, the essence, the heart, he described as the, the sure heart's release. He said that the purpose of all these teachings is to bring you, each person, to the same freedom and liberation that I have discovered in myself and that I know is possible for you as well. He said, if it weren't possible for you, I wouldn't teach you to do it. But just because it is possible for your heart to be free. So all these teachings are offered. And yes, there are all kinds of external things. But in the essence, it's to come back to a freedom of heart, no matter what the circumstances of your life. And we know this in the exemplars that I often talk about and that are so kind of iconic in the world of Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years of Robben Island prison and Aung San Suu Kyi after 17 years of house arrest and various other people where it's so evident that they can put your body in prison but no one can imprison your heart. No one can imprison your spirit. And so in this dialogue the Buddha is speaking to the heartwood, he says, to the essence, that there's something for you to discover which is untarnished, uh, unassailable, which is reliable as a refuge, which is the place of your own true nature, um, of who you really are before you even took this strange body and incarnation you happen to be wearing for this little bit of time that you call your current life. Now, that all sounds fine as a kind of philosophy, um, but what really matters to us and what the Buddha is pointing to in those teachings is how does this happen for us in the most direct and practical way. I talked about this a little bit a month ago or so when I was last here on Monday night, but my teacher Ajahn Chah, who had been a monk in the forests of Northeast Thailand, Laos, and Burma for a number of years, studying very ardently under various teachers and living in caves and doing all the kind of wild ascetic practices that were available to the forest monks at that time, went after eight or ten years of practice and found this great meditation master, the most famous of his era, and told him about all the experiences he'd had. He went and he said, I want to check in. and I could, you know, sit in the middle of hot and cold and not be moved by it and then I developed these deep levels of concentration and samadhi and dissolved my body into light and I had these insights and I understood the nature of way things arise and I, I looked into these Buddhist teachings and I had these visions and I had all these experiences and Ajahn Man, the master, listened and said, very nice but you've missed the point. And that got his attention. What do you mean I missed the point? All these years of hard work. He said, the point is not the different experiences you've had, pleasant ones and unpleasant ones and expanded ones and contracted ones and luminous ones and dark night ones. The point is to whom do they happen? You're still focused on what's on the screen, you know. Is it a documentary or a war movie or a romantic comedy, you know, or a love story or whatever, turn your attention back and become the witness, the one who knows. And if you rest uh, the, in the one who knows, and the literal translation of that is very much like being the Buddha, being the, the knowing. Buddha is used also in, in the Thai Lao language to mean um, awareness itself. Become the awareness rather than the experiences and you will find the liberation that you seek. O nobly born, begin the great Buddhist text, remember who you really are. Remember your true nature and um, rest in it, trust it. So you remember, of course, everybody's heard of the great magician Harry Houdini who did all those incredible things of escaping from impossible, you know, being chained and tied up and dunked in water and then he would somehow magically escape and so forth. 
Well, near the beginning of his career, Houdini traveled throughout Europe and he was visiting these different towns and he already had quite a reputation. And he would challenge the local jailers to bind him in a straitjacket and lock him in a cell. And again and again he delighted the crowd by getting out of the straitjacket and quickly escaping from what seemed impossible, you know, circumstances of being locked in the cell. Um, but in one small Irish village, he ran into trouble in front of all the gathered townspeople and this kind of avid crowd of people and reporters. He easily got out of the straitjacket. Yet despite repeated efforts to solve the puzzle of the lock, he failed to open the cell door. He finally had to admit defeat, one of the rare times, and ask the jailer to release him. After everyone had left, Houdini said to the jailer, what kind of new lock do you have on the cell? Oh, said the jailer, it's a very ordinary lock. I figured you'd have no difficulty opening it, so I never bothered locking it at all. <laughs> Falsely assuming he was trapped, Houdini couldn't figure out. <laughs> so, the thing about spiritual practice is that we can easily get into some idea or ideal, because we read those great books about Zen or you know, Advaita or Christian mystics or the Kabbalah or whatever it happens to be that you've read. Um, and then you read about the experiences and things. Or you just think about it as self-improvement, you know, that, okay, I go to therapy and I go to the gym and I jog and I floss and I meditate, right? <laughs> and maybe it will help. Um, and those are good in a certain way. But they too are not the point in the end. It's not a self-improvement project. And it's not about um, perfecting yourself. If it's perfecting anything, it's perfecting your love. Or perfecting that loving awareness. And so Ajahn Chah's teacher was pointing him back and saying, instead of focusing on the experiences, become the one who knows, become the knowing itself, which is why we did that meditation, you know, as an invitation through sound and space to rest in awareness. And it worked for some and for others it wasn't quite the right medicine, but you get the point of it in some fashion or other, um, of what it means to quiet the mind, let yourself open, and be the loving awareness that's the witness to experience. Um, and things get better. You'll try it. You know, try it at work. Try it in conflict that you're in. Try it in things that you have to do. Instead of being caught in things, take a couple of breaths and become the loving awareness. And then it becomes possible to act or respond, but not react, not be caught so much. You know what I'm saying? Very, very simple. And this is the pointing to the possibility of awakening. Enlightenment is not a very good word, as I said last time. Um, comes from the European historical, you know, era of the separation of the church and belief from science and so forth. And it's, of course, had tremendous value, but it kind of confuses people as if there's some great enlightenment that you're going to get. And then you'll live happily ever after. I had a friend here, actually, who went back, who was on staff, to be with their family and had a really hard time. They hadn't been back. And they've got a difficult family, which some of us have at times or have had. Um, and they were really, they said, after all the spiritual practice I've done, and it was still difficult. And I said, you know, I said, the Buddha had a hard time when he went home to his parents. Jesus had a tough time. I said, so what makes you think it's going to be any easier for you? <laughs> you So the point isn't somehow to make the world some ideal way that you would have it. And that doesn't mean that you ignore the world or ignore the, the crying need for justice or to put an end to the insanity of war or racism or the kinds of suffering that people make for one another. It doesn't mean that you're not responsible, but responsible in a different way. Not like it's something, you know, that you are going to do but rather that your heart is quiet and you're resting in loving awareness and then somebody's hungry, what do you do? You feed them. 
somebody's having difficulty, they're part of your family. So you awaken to your own Buddha nature, which is timeless and aware and uh, transparent. You begin to practice resting in loving awareness itself, the one who knows, being the knowing. Now, as you reflect on this, it actually becomes important to also think about the one who forgets. Alan Watts wrote a book called On the Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are. Culture really doesn't want you to know this. And the one who forgets the not knowing, different levels. There's the level of sleep, right? Where you forget because you want to go to sleep. And sleep is mysterious and wondrous. Why is it that mammals take a third of their time, conk out, and go unconscious, have all these amazing dreams and wake up? We do. But also your dog dreams. You know that. Or your cat. So it's bizarre. It is. And not only that, people are afraid to let go of my whole identity. Who am I going to be when I retire? Who am I going to be when I graduate college or something like that? You get to the end of the day. You've had a long day. And what do you most long for? I mean, well, after that. But then, <laughs> finally, finally is a good night's sleep. Seriously, right? And what that means, a good night's sleep, is that you forget your entire identity. You forget who you go into nothingness and dream. And isn't it wonderful? Why should you be afraid of that? You love it. So there's that kind. Sleep is amazing and, and mysterious, and, and it's not judged in spiritual practice. In one monastery I practiced, it was called the poor man's nirvana, right? It's sort of, okay. Um, that's one part of forgetting, and it's amazing. We're designed to not be conscious in that way a lot of the time. Um, I mean, everything's so mysterious in incarnation. It really is. And we take it for granted. How'd you get in there? Yeah. But that's not the main sleep, the one who forgets. That's just the person who gets the good night's sleep if you're lucky, right? New parents don't always get that. Um, but it's the second kind of sleep, which is the waking spell. Um, here, let me see. If I can read this, yeah. This is from Ann Wilson Schaaf. The best adjusted person in modern society is the person who's not dead and not alive. Just numb, a zombie. When you're dead, you're not able to contribute to the work of the society. You're not a working member. But if you're fully alive, you're constantly saying no to the many processes of the society the polluted environment, the nuclear threat, the racism, the arms race, drinking unsafe water, eating carcinogenic foods. Thus it is in the interest of modern consumer society to promote the things that take the edge off, keep us busy with our fixes, keep us slightly numbed out and zombie-like. In this way, our whole modern consumer society itself functions as an addict. How's that as an indictment of sleep, if you want to talk about it? And there's so many ways, the consumerism and the, you know, the, well, you know that I think there's a, there's a game that I know some techies play now. They go out to dinner and everybody puts their cell phone in the center, or their smartphone in the center of the table, makes a little like stupa out of it, right? <laughs> so they're all there, right, having dinner. And then the first person to pull their phone out pays for dinner. Right? <laughs> but here we are, and there's a lot of blessings in being wired together, but there's also craziness of the culture. There's nonstop speed, there's multitasking, there's, um, you know, we were supposed, do you know anybody that has a computer that has more free time? <laughs> you know, come on. Let's be honest. So the society also keeps us busy with our fixes and keeps us engaged in this round and doesn't let us stop and ask the big questions. What really matters? Who are we? What is the deepest value? And so that's more 
what it means to be the one who knows instead of being the one who forgets. James Baldwin, I read this often, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and fear so stubbornly is they realize once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with their own pain. And so we project it on others, the Muslims or the communists or the immigrants or the somebody who's different than us. Um, but it's not just that, you know. It's Dwight David Eisenhower. Every gun that's made, every warship launched, every rocket fired, and we are the largest weapons producer and distributor on the face of the earth. Hundreds of billions of dollars of killing machines that we send out every year around the world, and then we worry that we don't feel so safe. All of these weapons signify in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, from those who are cold and not clothed. This world in armaments is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. This is not a way of life at all in a true sense. Under the clouds of continuing warfare, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. So this is what it means to be the one who doesn't know, to be lost, whether it's the addiction or the craziness of the culture that we stop seeing because we're busy and we don't take a look. Or the things that are personally difficult, the kind of denial that we live in. I have a friend who's a teacher on the East Coast, a very gracious guy, um, Larry Rosenberg, now in his 80s, who's not only a meditation teacher, who's a professor at Harvard, or intellectually brilliant, um, and a great yogi of Hatha Yoga and so forth. Anyway, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years ago or so, he was riding the MTA, this subway in Boston. Um, and he was there um, crossing the Charles River and coming out from Boston over toward, toward Cambridge. Um, came to a stop right before the river. And um, he was standing there and, and um, he thought somebody was getting up to get off at the stop. This man got up and then he realized that the man got up because he was offering Larry his seat. And he was horrified. He said, wait a second, I'm the person who offers their seat to, you know, older people or pregnant women or something. What do you mean offering me a seat? Who does he think I am? And of course, then he had to look in the mirror and say, oh, I see. You know, this is a college student and I'm 50 years older than he is or whatever it is. But you know how that is, don't you? Hmm? You know what I'm talking about. It's so easy to fall into denial personally about our lives or the society around us. Hmm. And when you sit and meditate, there are all the kinds of temptations that come that um, try to keep you busy in different ways. You know, some of them are your spiritual ideals. And I think it was Joseph Campbell who said that religion actually collaborates in the inoculation against the mystery, generally. It sort of gives you some pat answer so that you don't have to say, wait a second, what do we do with this life? So you sit and the judging mind comes and the you know, loneliness comes and your anger comes and your doubt and your fear and so forth. And you can either try to fix all that, stop judging, I hate the judging mind, I don't want to judge anymore, I shouldn't judge, it's no good, right? But what's that? Yeah, more judgment. Okay, thank you for your opinion, that's just the judging mind, you know, or there's fear, I shouldn't have fear, I'm afraid of fear, what to do, right? Or you can rest in the one who knows and say, oh, this is the judging mind, thank you for your opinion. This is the fearful mind, this is the mind of longing, this is the doubting mind. Everybody has a doubting mind. If you're lost in the doubting mind, you're gone. And the doubt says you're not doing it right, you don't know what you're doing, the world, whatever, you know how the doubting mind is. And they say, oh, this is the doubting mind, thank you. 
And all of a sudden you become, as we did in that meditation, the space of awareness. You become the knowing. And I use the phrase loving awareness because you, in order to become conscious and aware in this way, to not get caught in the stickiness of grasping or judging or resisting, awareness and love become synonymous. And so you come to meditate not to have any particular experience. Sometimes you sit and the mind is quiet. Sometimes it's full of stories or reruns or conflict that you were in and it's, you know, or, or plans or fears or those things, you know, or maybe it's the pains in your body that we have because you have a human body. Anybody not have pain in your body? Please raise your hand. I mean, at some point recently. Just checking, okay? So you got this human incarnation and it displays itself and it's pleasure and pain and all these things. And you can either try to react to each one or you can become the space of loving awareness that listens, that allows the visitors to arise and pass, like the bells or the sounds or the thoughts without identifying with them, without taking them so personally. And that becomes the gateway to liberation. You begin to trust the space of awareness. And as you do, there come tastes of stillness, of graciousness, of ease, not because the stuff is gone. The stuff is the mind secretes thoughts, just the way the salivary gland secretes saliva. It just does. But instead of being caught in you say, oh, a lot of thoughts on the screen right now, pictures and images. But they don't define you, the thoughts or the feelings. You become the loving awareness, the witness of it. And this is the abode of the Buddhas, the abode of the awakened ones. The one who knows recognizes that things change that to everything there is a season. The one who knows the wisdom part of you is comfortable with uncertainty. Anybody certain about something? (laughs) Raise your hand. What's going to happen tomorrow? Anybody know? What's going to happen tomorrow? For sure. Something, she says. That's pretty good. (laughs) But even then, we're not absolutely sure. (laughs) I mean, that's part of the mystery of it. It's that cartoon that I like to talk about and saw in the San Francisco Chronicle that shows the camels crossing the desert. Father on a big camel, mother on a slightly smaller camel with all the carpets and bags and three little camels with the kids behind and the last little girl is talking to her dad and he says, stop asking if we're almost there yet. We're nomads for crying out loud. So the one who knows rests in the mystery. An old Sufi master who came in from the desert um, was tired and parched and went into the palace of the emir, pounded on the door and said, ask the emir if I can stay in this motel for a night. And that was passed on and the emir got really angry. You know, what do you mean calling my great palace a motel? Who is this? Send this, you know, guy in. And so he confronts him, pulls out the sword and says, what do you mean to call this grand palace a a motel? And he says, well, um, how long have you been living here? And he said, well, for this many years. And he said, who had it before you? He said, well, my father. And who had it before him? Well, my grandfather. And uh, before him, well, my great-grandfather. And then the Sufi looked back at him and said, in this place where people lodge for a brief while and then move on, you say it's not a motel? (laughs) The one who knows is comfortable with uncertainty and knows that things have their seasons. And it's the way, the mystery, 
And knowing it doesn't mean that you stop caring, but quite the opposite, that things become precious because nothing can be repeated. This evening will never happen again. The people that you see in the way that you see them today will never be seen quite that way again. And the, you know, spring sky that you saw on the way here as the sun was setting, never quite that way again. And the, the exquisite preciousness of every moment and every day becomes apparent because you're not trying to live someplace else. You're living in the reality of change and the understanding that this moment is it. And there comes a kind of wisdom in this. The mystery of life, not a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. Zen Master Isa. Poem. Dew evaporates, and all our world is dew like dew on the leaves in the morning. Dew evaporates and all our world is dew, so dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. This poem he wrote on the death of his daughter. So then you hear it again. Dew evaporates and all our world is dew, so dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. So somehow, if we keep the heart open and tender, it's the tenderness that sees both the in unbearable beauty and the ocean of tears that make up human incarnation. And that one who knows rests as the Buddha with a compassionate heart in the midst of it all. The one who knows rests in the reality of the present. The point is not the future of humanity but the presence of eternity. And you remember when you were a little kid, how long an hour could be, you know, and how it seemed like an infinite amount of time from one birthday to another. Just unbelievable. Because you were there. Because you were there with that kind of extraordinary innocence um, and, and openness moment by moment by moment, what seemed like it would be, you know, an age of that hour or waiting for dessert or dinner or something. An idolatrous religion, wrote Aldous Huxley, is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Future time in the idea of endless progress is the devil's work demanding human sacrifice on an enormous scale. Another kind of indictment of living in our thoughts and in the future when all we really have is the present. To eat an apple and really take your time and taste it, or a kiwi, or watch the phases of the moon. There was another cartoon in the Chronicle. It showed a guy walking along the streets in North Beach, dressed in kind of some sort of robe with a big sign that said, Jesus is coming. And behind him down the block was another guy with a shaved head, looking kind of monk-like, with a sign that said, Buddha here now. Oh, the Chronicle, thank you, you know. Mm. There is no past. The past is always here in the present. There's no future. The future is an idea that we have in the present. There is only the present. And your being present is the universe. This is it. And it unfolds through you and in you and you are it. It's not separate from you. And the more that you trust the one who knows, that you rest in knowing, the more you become comfortable being the center of the world, which is everywhere. And the more you become alive in the reality of the present 
and then you do taste the tangerine and you do actually live with the people that you love and the things that you care about and that you're responsive. And not because this is the right way to be and the other way is bad or something like that, but this is the heartwood, this is awakening. It's possible for us as human beings to live in a free and awake way. And it's the longing of people, those who are, you know, slaves, those who are um, imprisoned in different ways. There's this great longing for freedom. But in the heart, there's also a longing to be what you can really be, to manifest a great compassion and freedom of spirit that is your birthright. So the one who knows is at ease with the changing of the seasons. The one who knows rests in the reality of the present and can plan appropriately, can remember, but it's all now. The one who knows is not afraid of pain or pleasure. That part of us that's wise sees that existence in this incarnation way is woven with light and dark and pleasure and pain and praise and blame and hot and cold and gain and loss and birth and death. And it couldn't be any other way. You have to have duality or you can't have experience and form. As soon as you have cold, you have hot. As soon as you have birth, you have death. It's wild, isn't it? It's really amazing. But here we are. And so... Pain isn't the enemy. I think I remember this passage from Annie Morrow Lindbergh where she talks about when pain comes, take a breath as deep as the pain itself until you reach a kind of inner freedom like a vessel lying on the beach with the wave coming in and out as though the pain were not yours but the body's. The spirit lays the body on the altar, is her word. And so you say, oh, this is pain, and this is pleasure. Some people are afraid of pleasure, quite loyal to their suffering. You think, I'm kidding, don't you? No. So I see some people's faces. Um, and so we're afraid of pleasure or pain, or we grasp one or another. Richard Baker Roshi from San Francisco Zen Center transmitted his Zen teaching to Isan Dorsey, who became a Zen master and ran the Hartford Street Zendo during the whole period or some period of the AIDS epidemic when it was really bad and eventually Isan was dying of AIDS and Dick Baker used to say to his Zen students, if you're with someone who's dying and you're not willing to trade places with them at that very moment, then you're not really practicing Zen. Kind of tough, right? Okay. So when Isan was dying, Richard came to visit him and said, I wish I could trade places with you right now. Don't worry, responded Isan, you'll get your chance. <laughs> it's how it works. Pleasure and pain and gain. And you have a certain measure of sorrows that are given to you and a certain measure of unbelievable joys. Um, and that's what life is woven of. And it's not to judge or say, well, it's supposed to be a particular way. It's woven of this fabric. This is a novel that was written um, and a story about this social work intern who was in Watts. Um, and there was a stray cat in the neighborhood known as Baldy. And she somehow got the idea to feed it. She worried, though, what the people would think in the community center. At first, I thought they were angry at me, the men there. They glared and they said, he don't know what to do with that. He ain't never had anything that good in his life. I said, well, I'll just try. And I opened the can. And they stopped playing pool and they all watched when I put it down. And let me tell you, the way that cat buried his head in that can, he thrust his big head down, fingers splayed, his refined voice rolling and softly gobbling. He looked up at us and if cats could cry, tears would have been streaming down his face. Nobody said a word. And then one of the men crouched down and held the can so the cat could get to it better. And every day after that, I brought in a can of food, and every day the men would gather to watch Baldy eat. It was probably one of the few times they got to see a righteous need completely satisfied. 
And so it's so easy to judge desire, but desire is woven into incarnation. It's not a bad, there's healthy desire and unhealthy desire, but desire is part of you. And so the one who knows sees birth and death and desire and longing and joy and sorrow and rests in loving awareness says, yes, this, this too. The one who knows looks at the world with the eyes of compassion. Sometimes when we have our back altar in the retreat, the beautiful retreat hall that we have there, there's an altar in the front that has Buddhas and stuff like that on it, Kuan Yin and so forth. And in the back, people make it a personal altar and during the course of a retreat of a week or a month they'll put pictures of loved ones or poems or you know a bird's nest that had fallen that they found in the forest or all kinds of found things and it becomes really an amazing kind of community altar sometimes it looks like Lourdes or something like that you see all these prayers and people who died and loving words to them and so forth um And I just will stand back there sometimes and feel the love that's in the room simply because people get quiet and they listen. And when you really get quiet and listen, what else is there? You know, the one who knows doesn't blame the government or the fundamentalists or the Republicans or the Democrats or the capitalists or the libertarians or the people in Berkeley, you know. (laughs) The one who knows doesn't blame your lover, your partner, your spouse, your childhood. Um, this is from that Western Tibetan monk, Alan Wallace. He says, imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you and you fall and your groceries are strewn over the ground and as you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you're ready to shout, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you can catch your breath to speak, you see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. And there he is, sprawled in the same spilled groceries and vegetables and tomato juice. And your anger instantly vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you up? Our human situation is like this. When we clearly realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is ignorance and blindness, we open the door of wisdom and compassion. And so the one who knows sees this way, sees with compassion, the heart becomes tender because you let yourself become quiet. You're not trying to perfect the world. You're really resting in the loving heart. And it changes everything. and changes the entire equation. And things become holy, even the difficulties. I mean, not when you're in the middle of them. I know you hate them. Me too. But you know what I mean. After a while you say, I, that was a lesson too. That was something that was important. And Ajahn Chah, my teacher, used to say, when do you learn stuff? When it's all easy? <laughs> the things you really need to learn, yeah? Sometimes you do. But you also learn from the hardship. It's what tears the heart open. It's what makes you learn to forgive, to let go, to stick to your values no matter what to follow, you know, what your heart knows to be wise. So the one who knows has the great heart of compassion. And from that place, mostly you could say thank you. Thank you for the life you've been given. Thank you for the things that are around you. Thank you for the gifts. Thank you for the difficulties. The one who knows is comfortable with the paradox of the world. Irony and metaphor and, you know, this is humanity. It's all woven together. Form is not different than emptiness, it says in the Heart Sutra. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. The words of Kalu Rinpoche, there is a a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And somehow the paradox is that we're woven into the fabric of life. Life is what we are. 
living itself through this incarnation, not separate from the rainforests and the air that you breathe that just came dazzling over the Pacific and touched the top of Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa and then swept in across the Falerones to um, be inhaled by you and the person next to you when you breathe it out. I mean, it's amazing. It's not separate. And your body, which is made of the elements of this earth, all of which is congealed starlight, basically. And then you get starlight by eating. I mean, basically what you eat is sunlight. You know that, right? That the trees around have these extraordinary things, leaves, that drink sunlight and turn it through chlorophyll into sugar. They turn sunlight into sugar. And then, you know, the cows turn it into milk, right? The, the, how does grass turn into milk? It's wild through the cow, of course, right? But that's all sunlight. That's what you are, starlight and sunlight. I mean, I'm not talking like poetry here. This is, this is science. It's wild. So the one who knows somehow sees this mystery of humanity and there comes a sense of trust and spaciousness. And then, you know, what can you do? There's a story I got. Let me see. So many stories. On May 7th, 1824, the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven premiered in Vienna. And it was his first stage appearance in 12 years. The theater was crowded, and Beethoven was conducting at the center stage. But meanwhile, Michael Umlauf, the Kapellmeister, the choir's master, was quietly directing from the side. Umlauf instructed the singers and musicians to ignore the deaf Beethoven, who was quickly turning the pages of his score and beating time for an orchestra he could not hear. And violinist Joseph Bohm, who played that day, wrote this account. He said, Beethoven directed the piece himself. He stood before the lectern and gesticulated furiously. At times he rose, at other times he shrank to the ground. He moved as if he wanted to play all of the instruments himself and sing for the whole chorus. At the end of the symphony, as the audience interrupted into an ovation, Beethoven was still several measures off and conducting away. <laughs> it was the contralto Caroline Unger, who walked over and gently turned the composer to face the crowd, seeing the reception, yet hearing nothing, he began to weep. And there's some way we think we're directing this, right? You're like Beethoven. You think you're directing your life. And you do get to direct it a little bit, and you should. And you can choose that which is justice, and you can choose that which is respect for one another, and you can choose that which is compassion. All that comes from the one who knows, from the loving heart. But there's another way in which, you know, it's all happening. <laughs> and you get to go for the ride. But the illusion that you're in control of a lot of it, come on, get real. <laughs> loving awareness. As you rest in it, there comes ease, joy, Compassion, well-being, calm, concentration. And more than that, a sense of the beauty and the sacredness of life. Because you're not entangled in the way it's supposed to be for you. You're actually able to be present for it the way that it presents itself. And this is wisdom. It's the, it's the spirit that you see in the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and these various elders and teachers and so forth. Um, who can rest at ease in the present, can love in the face of birth and death and gain and loss and pleasure and pain, and bring compassion to it all. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, writes Diane Ackerman, poet. I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, 
an architect of peace. This is what's possible for you. And what a beautiful gift. So meditation, yes, it's good for stress reduction, for working with pain, for quieting the mind in certain ways, for discovering things, listening, working things out. And it's way more than that. It's really an invitation to stop and rest in the mystery, return to be the Buddha that you are, to look with the eyes of compassion and understanding on this life you've been given. So let's sit for a moment. Take the time to pray, to meditate. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge so the doorway can swing open easily. The doorway into the garden. So thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.